Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to Bespoke Cast. This afternoon, we are going to dive deep into repo markets, the plumbing of the financial markets and fixed income specifically with Alex Skaggs. Alex is uh, one of my favorite uh, fixed income writers. She currently writes for Barron's and we're super excited to have her. Alex, welcome to Bespoke Cast. Hi, thanks for having me. I am really excited to talk to you today because we have had probably the most exciting two months in repo markets since 2008, 2009. Is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely. Um, it was funny. I was I was going to maybe put this as the lead of a story, but didn't want to try to get it past my editors. Um, I think repo is funny because they call it, you know, the plumbing of the market and stuff like that. And I think it's it's kind of similar because the only time you really hear about it is when something goes wrong. Right. You you never think about what's going on in the pipes, your like the walls of your house and the pipes until suddenly they're they're burst out and flowing everywhere. Exactly. And it's never good. It's it's never good when something goes wrong. No, you don't want that. stuff to go wrong. Yeah. Um. So what? Ex- okay. I, I think it would be really helpful to just pause for a second, and because I'm sure there are people listening to this, and there are probably lots of people over the last two weeks who have thought, "What on earth is the repo market? Like, why are we talking about this? What? I've never heard of this in my life. What does it mean?" Okay. So let's just before we get any further, what does repo mean? Okay. So it's basically when a a trading desk, you know, somewhere like a bank or a hedge fund or an investor, or somebody um, has a lot of treasuries and needs cash. So basically what they do is they take a treasury security and they pledge it to a bank overnight in exchange for cash. And then when they get their treasury back the next day, they basically buy it back for a little bit higher of a price than they got for it. And that little bit of extra price is the interest rate on that repo transaction. It's like repurchase agreement. Yeah, repurchase. It's it's just I agree to I agree to sell this to you right now and then repurchase from you at a later date at a fixed price. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's it's a loan and it's a, it's specifically a, a loan yes. of securities. Yes. And it's specifically a loan of securities that is collateralized. Or sorry, it's a it's a loan, but it's specifically a loan of secure that is collateralized by securities. Um, so it, it it's interesting too because repo and and we're gonna get delve into how this relates to bank reserves and funding, but um, repo is interesting because it it's not just people borrowing cash, as in you know when when we think about borrowing, right? What we tend to think about is people going out and saying I need cash to do something, right? I buy a house, buy a car, you know I. I pay for my kids' education, whatever. Or if I'm a company, I want to build a plant or pay my workers or whatever I need to do. Okay, yeah. so I'm going to go out and borrow cash. And then I'm going to pay pay back cash in the future because presumably yeah. what I'm doing is going to create cash in some way. And great. Okay. 
in repo markets, it kind of works both ways though, because the, mm -hmm. the loan, the thing you could need may not actually be the cash, but it could be the underlying security, right? Because if you're short a treasury, you have to go and get that treasury somewhere, yes. right? Like you to deliver that treasury to execute your short, to sell it to somebody else, you have yes. to go and borrow a bond from someone else. In other words, pay them cash to get the bond. It's the opposite of, of how things work. So I think that's important to just note before we get into the bank reserve side of things is the way the repo market works is, is two-sided. Yeah, and, and that's they call that a special, right? When someone needs the security more than they need the cash? Yeah, like that. that's when a specific yeah. issue, well, um, special refers to when a specific issue is trading at a very low repo rate or a much lower mm -hmm. than market repo rate because people really need that specific security to deliver into some sort of trade they've executed previously. So yeah, that, that would be us. But in general, if you're short treasuries, the way you go and get those treasuries to deliver, you know, it could be just any, any treasury bond in general, you have yes. to borrow those on the repo market. That's like what, how you do that. So anyhow, I just think that's important background because the, the sure. repo market is two-sided in a way that a lot of other lending markets are not. Yeah, yeah, and and that's the sort of like pledging aspect that I was talking about because they do get something in return. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so then this is banks doing this. How does that mm -hmm. relate to reserves, and what did that look like before the crisis? Okay, so before the financial crisis, um, banks had scarce reserves, um, which is basically like there is only so much. Um, and when we say reserves, we mean kind of like cash, I guess, like the most money-like money that's out there. Okay, we're not talking about reserves as in like capital ratios. That That's not what we're talking about. Yeah, we're talking about just money in the bank at the Fed. It's specifically what, what it is, is it's a specific kind of asset that can only be held by banks that is a credit in an account at the Federal Reserve. It's a liability of the Fed, an asset of the banks. It's traded in a network that's supported by the Fed, basically. And it's it's sort of what's I mean, is it maybe best to think about it sort of like a checking account for banks? I mean, really, I think that's oh, probably yeah. the best way to think about it, right? I think so. Yeah, no, that's a really good way to put it. So instead of the checking account being the liability of another bank, it's the liability of the Fed. And only mm -hmm. banks can hold federal reserves. You cannot yeah. hold federal reserves if you're a company, if you're a government-sponsored entity, if you're the U.S. Treasury, whoever. Like, you can't – a household, whoever. You cannot hold federal funds. So um, where, where were we? Prior to the crisis, reserves – yeah, prior to the crisis, um, reserves were scarce. Like banks generally, like as a general rule, needed more reserves than were actually out there on any given day. So they would borrow and lend from each other pretty often overnight. And that was in the federal funds market. So the Fed and the Fed still targets um, the federal funds rate, you know, targeting this market, which is basically the market that banks lend uh, reserves to one another overnight. Um, and these loans were not secured, like you were talking about, right? Like there was no security being traded for them. It was just saying, okay, we're going to lend this to you overnight for an interest rate and we don't get anything in return, uh, which I think is also kind of an important point uh, because those kinds of transactions are generally less safe than, other, than, than a secured transaction, right? Because when you... When you're leaving your other person basically with nothing and just promising, oh, I'll get back to you, you know, the next day, uh, it's a lot 
it's a lot less safe than like if you give someone something of yours. It's like pawning versus getting a loan, basically. Yeah, I would I would mitigate that with the observation that when we're talking about the federal funds market, banks are required to hold certain amounts of these of these assets. So basically, like the Fed says, you have to have a minimum number of reserves. And when you're going out and and borrowing these reserves and lending these reserves between the various banks in the system, um, you know it's kind of the last place the bank is going to default on some sort of loan. And and the the loans are because they're all taking place within the Federal Reserve System. They're they're much lower risk than, for instance, like overnight um, dollar financing in LIBOR markets or you know um, offshore markets in London or wherever, right? Like so. I would just throw that in there. Yeah, that's a very good point um, because there is lower credit risk there. Um, but the funny thing is, like you said, uh, banks do have to have a certain amount of reserves. And since the financial crisis, banks have had to have a lot more reserves than they did beforehand. So that's the big change. But but prior to the financial crisis, what we have is a bunch of banks, let's say bank A, B, and C. Bank A says at the end of the day, for whatever reason, I've got more reserves than I need. Bank B says, well, I've got less reserves than I need. Bank C says, I'm all square. I've got exactly the number of reserves I need. So bank B has to go out and borrow from bank A they transact. There's a fund. There's an interest rate applied to that. That interest rate is the federal funds rate, which is what the FOMC targets when they're setting monetary policy. Okay. So the question is, why does that interest rate happen to fall right where the FOMC wants its policy rate to be at? Why? How is the Fed able to control that federal funds market? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> um, I think maybe you probably could answer this better than me, George. <laughs> well, open market operations, right? Yeah. So what what they're doing is they're going and they're using repo. So they're coming into the market and saying, okay, well, right now they're you know the interest rates in the Fed funds market are too are too high. Therefore, we need more Fed funds into the market. Higher supply of Fed funds means lower cost of Fed funds, which means the target rate will go right to where we want it to go to. At you know, let's say for instance five percent. Right now it's at five and an eighth. We want it at five. Okay, so supply some Fed funds to the market. How do we do that? We take treasuries out of the market and we put Fed funds into the market, and we do that by repoing out bonds conducting repo operations where banks deliver bonds to us and we deliver Fed funds to them. Now the interest rate goes to where the target needs to be and everything is gravy. We may have to do the you know billions of dollars worth of this, but every day we're gonna go out and do this and make sure that there's a balance between supply and demand. And then 2008 came along. So we went from this environment where repo rates and Fed funds are tied together. They're both relatively narrowly balanced markets with the New York Fed regularly coming in to decide every day how much do we need to add or take out of um, in terms of reserves via repo operations in to keep everything where we want it want to keep it. Then 2008 happens and 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 what's next? And uh, well, first, the Fed funds market basically dries up because, like you know, I mentioned before, um, banks ended up having to hold a lot more reserves um, because of regulations and also because the Fed was buying bonds uh, as part of their um, QE efforts, uh, quantitative easing. And that meant that the Fed had a lot of bonds on its balance sheet as an asset, which, of course, on the other side of that were uh, bank reserves on the liability side. 
Right. So like we just des described, right? Instead of going out and doing repos that got unwound or, you know, are, are brought in just, you know, temporarily, right? Instead, we've got the Fed coming in and saying, okay, here are just a bunch of reserves. We're going to buy a bunch of bonds and now we're not going to unwind that trade. And suddenly the excess reserves pile up in the system. And what's unique about this is that only this is really important only banks can hold reserves so when every time the fed buys a bond they're adding an asset to the bank's balance sheets that they can't then sell on to someone else the bond they have to go buy from someone else the balance sheet the the reserves can't leave the banking system so as qe continues banks are basically stuffed with these reserves which are in some ways really good because as you described post financial crisis regulation said what uh, banks had to hold a lot of reserves. So banks needed to hold um, safe, basically safe and liquid assets. And of course, they still need to uh, hold a decent amount of safe and liquid assets um, because of the Basel III rules um, that, I guess, hold on, sorry. Um, anyway, so, so Basel III rules were implemented after the financial crisis and they had uh, the supplemental... Uh, Gosh, what is that? The supplemental leverage ratio? Yes. And the liquidity coverage ratio. I keep getting the leverage and liquidity mixed up, but I think those are right. Um, and the combination of those two left banks with a lot of high quality liquid assets um, just because they had to. So and, in, a, in um, other words, they were forced to go out and buy certain yes. assets, right? So like, what is a high quality liquid asset? Uh, treasuries count, uh, and so do reserves. But so, is, is it like, like, I guess, can in a, in a general principle, like, what's what what are you looking for as a regulator? Why are you trying to make a bank buy a specific asset? Like, yes. So they want they want banks to own assets that they could sell to raise cash, um, if they had to what like liquidate within thirty days or something. Like, that, it's a pretty substantial number, if I remember right. Um, but again, you may remember the regulations better than me. I mean, just in general, right? If you're if you're a regulator and we had all these problems with banks during the crisis because they were run at very high leverage and they didn't have enough cash lying around to meet their obligations when they got margin calls and poof went the, you know, just very bad stuff happened with Lehman, with Bear Stearns, you know, on down the line throughout the banking system. What the regulators want is a store of assets that banks have to hold where if they get into trouble, whatever that trouble may be, maybe that trouble is repo markets freeze up and they can't fund that way. Maybe that trouble is they have loans go bad. Maybe that trouble is depositors want to bail on them, whatever, whatever the issue is. Um, if they have to go out and fund themselves, they can quickly provide funds to people that are demanding them using these liquid assets, stuff that you can sell quickly at almost exactly the same price that you expect to sell it at, um, that you don't have to take big haircuts on. You know, So for instance, if you need to go out and sell a billion dollars worth of stock right now, no matter what, you're not going to get a billion dollars for that, right? Um, yes, exactly. If you go out and try and sell a billion dollars worth of treasury bills right now, no matter the price, okay, you might not get a billion, but you're going to get pretty dang close, right? So that's a li high quality liquid asset. Yes. And a certain amount of that um, has to be in reserves, whether that's a formal rule or an informal, informal rule. Uh, I know that uh, regulators have actually talked about that a little bit. Um, which, which is, uh, I think that actually matters a lot for what happened over the past couple of weeks. 
but I, I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves. So no, I I mean I think I think we're there, yeah. right? So you know we talked about how the 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 market operated pre-crisis. Mm -hmm. Then we talked about okay now banks have all these excess reserves because of QE and because of large scale asset purchases. Okay, so now we're in a situation where the Fed doesn't have to go out and conduct these repo operations anymore. The repo market basically takes care of itself. That's oversimplifying a little bit, but mm -hmm. but basically that that's the that's that's the reality. Instead, um, you know, when it comes time to lift rates with these huge chunks of excess reserves in the system still, the Fed introduced um, interest on excess reserves and another tool called the overnight reverse repo, overnight fixed rate reverse repo facility. facility. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Which basically did, you know, basically those two things created a minimum and a maximum rate that, um, you know, policy rates would trade at whenever um, the market, for whatever reason, needed extra cash. Um, IOER was supposed to be the ceiling and the overnight fixed rate reverse repo facility, AKA the Death Star was supposed to be the floor and that was supposed to pull rates up. What's happened in reality is a little bit different because we are back into a world of reserve scarcity, right? Yes, um, and I do think it's important to point out that the Fed has been doing transactions in money markets for you know, a decent amount of time, basically since uh, whenever they raised rates the first time post-crisis. Um, they've been doing repo transactions. Just in this case with the reverse repo facility, the Death Star you're talking about, um, they were taking in cash from money market funds and lending out treasury securities from their balance sheet. So it's like an opposite transaction of what they were doing before the crisis. Exactly. Well, they before the crisis, they would do it both ways. Yeah, right? They were, right, right. They, you know, sometimes they were easy. Sometimes they were providing Fed funds to the market. Sometimes they were sure. taking them out. Yeah. Um, but Good in point. terms of the most the most recent um, Fed activity, that has been exclusively, you know, adding Fed funds to the market. The overnight reverse repo facility is designed to take Fed funds out of the market and to provide a floor for other interest rates. Um, you know, basically we'll take as much, you know, if you want to borrow um, at, at our rate, you know, this is sort of the last place that you're gonna come for the, for the, um, for the lowest, Th this rate will be a floor for all other rates, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they can, it, you know, the mechanics of that are basically the same thing. You know, they're taking, bonds out of their out of their pool of bonds they bought post-crisis they're delivering those to investors who want returns on cash the cash comes into the fed and again it's not cash um although sort of yeah. um you know the the cash comes into the fed and then the whole thing gets unwound um because uh then the investors get back a bit more cash and they've gotten their interest rate return and the bond gets the bonds go back to the fed so exact mirror opposite of a situation where the fed wants to keep overnight rates a little bit lower than the market wants to put them. Okay. So yes. we've had all this background now. So, you know, we now come to the repo market. Yes. What so, happened in the last couple of weeks? So I think to talk about that, we should talk about what's happened in the past couple of years, which again, it's still, it's still been a regime change. And I think that what happened in the past couple of weeks was like an exclamation point on that. So, so what I'm talking about is that the Fed has been unwinding its uh, portfolio of bonds. So basically, when it was quantitative, when it was doing its quantitative easing, it was buying bonds up of, off of the market and uh, doing that and creating bank reserves, basically, like you were saying. And now they are letting some of the bonds that they hold mature. 
and not buying the same amount um, to keep their portfolio the same size. They're actually letting their portfolio shrink. And on the other side of the balance sheet, like you pointed out, the bank reserves are also shrinking in terms of like the amount that that's just out there. And so that's been happening now for a couple of years, year and a half. Um, And over the past couple of weeks, the rate, the repo rate, basically, where um, the rate that you'll borrow cash in exchange for pledging a treasury has risen a lot. And it rose a lot very briefly, but a couple of days in there, it spiked up to like, I don't know, 5%, some transactions above 9%. Um, And so this has a a bunch of really interesting implications, but I'm sure we'll get into that. Um, I just want to see if you have anything to add about the the past few weeks and the Fed balance sheet rundown. Yeah. So, so basically these, this, this stock of excess reserves, the, 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 the reserve balances held at the Fed by the banking system in aggregate above what, what was required by the federal reserves, um, minimum reserve yes. requirements. That number has steadily dropped because as QE is unwound, if a bond matures while the Fed holds it, okay, you just got to think about like where, where the cash goes basically you know the fed is the holder of the bond so the treasury basically pays cash to the fed um the um fed doesn't then take that cash and buy a new bond so the net effect is that cash comes out of the system and when we say cash we're not talking about physical cash here we're talking about debits and credits on electronic entry here um basically a, a wire goes to the Fed and the Fed receives the cash, the, the balance sheet um, shrinks because the asset that they held is um, taken to zero and the liability in the banking system, the, the reserve is also taken to zero. So the aggregate balance sheet shrinks. Um, so that that process like has been going on and has reached a point where suddenly there aren't enough reserves relative to what banks want. So there's there are two different ways to think about the requirement for banks to hold reserves. There's the amount of required reserves per the Fed's required uh, reserve regulation that is relate that is very old regulation and you know requires a certain amount of banks' assets to be held in these cash-like instruments called reserves. There's also this new layer of liquidity coverage and um, high quality liquid asset uh, regulation that goes beyond that. So when we talk about required reserves, we're generally talking about the former. The latter is a lot stickier. Right now, banks hold well in excess of the amount required by the Fed for the former set of regulations, again, which is very old. The newer set of regulations, they don't have enough reserves. And the way we saw that is the volatility in the repo market. Yeah. And so that that points out a couple of interesting things, I think, because, you know, a high quality liquid asset from these these new set of regulations that you were talking about, um, which is the Basel three regulations. Um, you know, I think that a treasury and reserves, I'm not entirely sure they count equally under that. Um for like various regulatory reasons. But basically what happened over the past couple of weeks, like on the other hand of the the sort of reserve balance shrinking, um, the treasury also ended up issuing a lot of securities sort of like, and they all sort of settled at the same time. And, and this isn't like, oh, the treasury is, um, you know, going crazy, you know, printing bills or anything. It's It's just that, 
it had a big chunk of uh, coupon-bearing treasuries that settled all at once. And that meant that they hit the market basically all at once, which left banks with a lot of excess treasuries um, and not as much excess reserves as they would like under these regulations um, and to keep the repo market in balance. Yeah, so um, I think... I think the way to think about this is the combination of the unwind of the Fed's bond portfolio, the maturation of, of bonds, that combined with the new post-crisis regulations created a situation where the lake of the repo market was much thinner than people thought it was. Yeah, the, yeah that's, a, that's a really good way to put it. The combi- the um, the settlement of a bunch of bonds all at the same time is basically a swimmer diving into that lake, thinking it's quite deep and not realizing he's going headfirst into some rocks. And so it, it, it's not a question of every time that there's a big settlement, that means the repo market goes crazy. Again, it's a two-sided market. So when people are coming in to, to, to settle those bonds, like sometimes there's a lot of demand for bonds because a lot of people are short and it works out. Um, this time, because there wasn't much liquidity in terms of reserves in the system, when people came in to stuff more bonds into that financing market to, to say, we need to get these bonds funded, there wasn't any water there, the literally like liquidity, right? There wasn't any liquidity there mm-hmm. to be matched and invested at, at market rates. And so what, when that happens, you've got too much supp- or not enough supply of capital in the form of cash and too much demand for it in the form of these bonds needing to be financed. And of course, that means interest rates go up. The price of that cash goes up. And that really is what happened over over that two-week span, or really it was only a couple days, where repo rates surged overnight um, and you know ended up in the 9% range for some transactions um, and, and got so far out of whack. Yeah. And I think that week also was the, um, was a tax, uh, a quarterly tax payment deadline. And so I don't know if you want to talk about the treasury's general accounts at all, but when, uh, when, you know, big institutions or, you know, wealthy people pay taxes, um, you know, they're sending checks to the IRS and the treasury basically can put that into its general account uh, which is an account at the Fed. Uh, the the f- interesting thing is that that money does not go into the pool of bank reserves that the banks use to trade back and forth intraday um, that would be used, you know, otherwise to cover some of these repo transactions. Yeah, exactly. So so basically the, the Federal or sorry, the Treasury over the course of the summer ran down its its bank account at the Federal Reserve because it was up against the debt ceiling and couldn't issue uh, more bonds to, to fund cash expenditures. So it had to run down its bank account, which is basically what you and I would do um, when uh, we're yes. waiting for payday. Of course, the difference being important to point out, the federal government is not actually budget constrained because, uh, except when we run into these silly debt ceiling procedures where there's an arbitrary cap placed on the debt issued by the treasury. Anyhow, that's another thing entirely. Yes. 
yeah. Treasury. It's a different podcast. Yeah, that's that's a bugaboo of mine, but I mean, <laughs> we'll get there. Um, yeah. So anyhow, yes. the um, the Treasury was basically running down its bank account at the Fed over the summer. Then in July, we got the passage of the debt ceiling and uh, raised debt ceiling numbers. And as a result, Treasury could go out and rebuild its bank account, and it does that by issuing debt. So. By, by issuing debt to the market and then taking that the cash from that and instead of then passing it on somewhere else in the economy to another actor, it's just lumping it into the Fed. Literally the exact opposite of, or literally doing exactly the opposite of what the Fed did to ease repo markets. Instead of taking cash, putting it into the market and taking bonds out of the market, you're putting bonds into the market and taking cash out of the market. Like mechanically, it's the exact same thing. So you have that. You have the, there was a specific day, um, uh, Tuesday, the uh, what was it, Alex, the thirteenth or sorry? I think it was the sixteenth. Was yeah. the that yeah? It was the quarterly tax filing deadline. Ten forty ES payments it, were due. Yeah. You had a large settlement of coupons. A lot of different stuff had been. A lot of the uh, treasuries. Uh, cash balance had been pulled out of the market. So it was this perfect storm of stuff that kept lowering that level of, of water in the lake and the diver is standing on a higher and higher diving board and getting ready to dive. And, you know, of course what happens is they end up hurting themselves. Um, you know, like all of this is basically a construct of how the U.S. money system works, right? Um, none of this is something where like something breaks. It's the, you know, and, and it's interesting because a lot of people were sort of like, oh, what must be going on at the banks because this is happening? And I'm not really sure that's the place to look in this case. I mean, it could just be that the Federal Reserve and the banks altogether just didn't realize, again, like the, the comparison that you put, like that the lake was so shallow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I guess you know when when people come people come out and say, oh well, this this market that banks use to fund themselves is has really high interest rates right now. Well, that must mean that banks can't fund themselves. No, banks yeah. don't actually fund themselves in the repo market. Like, like that that is one yeah. tiny component, and post crisis a much smaller than aggregate component, um, much smaller than pre crisis component of where banks you know, um, tend to do their funding. Um, you see lots of banks active in the repo market because it's a, it's a dealer business, right? Like dealers sometimes need to fund inventory mm -hmm. and they also need to provide repo liquidity two ways to clients. So they're active in the repo market, but in terms of going out and every day, if we don't get a certain amount of repo funding, the firm's going to go bankrupt, which was true in the financial crisis. That is not true of any bank anymore, anywhere on wall street. It, it doesn't, that's not true of any of their business models. Exactly. Though I am curious, I know that, that you have a little bit of experience in the repo market. And I mean, how much of that now is, is leveraged funds like, you know, hedge funds or, or other investors like that instead of a uh, big institutional sort of more vanilla accounts? I, I, I can't speak to it specifically in terms of like a quantitative number. Yeah. Certainly when I, you know, I, I spent a fair bit of time around repo in like 2012, 2013. And the, the, the market then that I saw was from the perspective of a dealer providing liquidity going both ways. Um, so you had lots of, for instance, money market funds on ones on, you know, providing cash on one side of the transaction and, you know, leveraged funders, other banks, you know, occasionally would come in 
-hmm. a lot of it was basically brokered transactions like like for most of the institutions that are that are you know doing this kind of investing they're doing it because they they have to do it because it's very safe as opposed to they're doing it because it provides a high rate of return so okay that's helpful to know yeah it's 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 just a very like the that the the repo market has been de-risked dramatically mm -hmm. since the yeah. crisis um yeah yeah so i i won't get into like you know re-pledging treasuries or anything like that because i know that's sort of a a tangent um, yeah like hypothecation and repo yeah, and all yeah. that stuff is yeah that that's it's definitely a tangent i yeah, yeah. i it, it was really funny though to see like on so many people whether it's you know uh, financial blogs or commentators on Twitter, whoever, like say like, oh, repo's going crazy. That must mean something's really wrong. And, you know, we're getting a replay of the financial crisis. And yeah, it, <laughs> it, was, it was just, you know, like obviously, you know, you've listened to Alex and I talk about this for now 30 plus minutes. Like this is a really complicated market, right? There's a lot that's changed in this market since, two, since prior to 2008. And, you know, it's just so funny to see people come in and try and boil it down to, oh, well, we're getting a repeat of 2008. Like, it's like... Bank funding, uh, you know, th there were people were saying, oh, look, bank funding froze up. And, and I think, like you said, it does sort of give the implication that, you know, banks couldn't, like, find enough cash just to operate, which I'm, I'm not sure is really true, right? Like, I, I think that basically, like, the, what happened was the Fed needed to inject more cash or, you know lend more cash temporarily into the system because they had let res reserves get too low. Yeah. So it's really important to understand the difference between an increase in, in like interest rates and, you know, an ability to get stuff, you know, to get funding trades yeah. done. Like there were, I don't, I'm not aware of anyone that, that wasn't able to get a funding trade done, you know, during that spike in repo rates, every everybody that wanted to borrow money could. It just they had to do so at painful rates for like a day or two because there weren't enough reserves floating around. And then as soon as the Fed stepped in and said, "Okay, here are some reserves. We're gonna we're gonna repo out bonds," everything calmed down immediately. And we haven't had a problem with it since. The the yeah. operations have continued at the Fed. They've done a series of um, basically overnight and term repo transactions with the market to provide reserves, uh, reduce the number of bonds that have to be financed. Um, and they've done that since um, the 17th, um, or sorry, since the 16th. And, you know, they've, some of them have been fully taken up, others haven't, they're going to do it through quarter end. And then at the next FOMC meeting, we're probably going to hear a plan from the Fed to say, okay, well, clearly, like, we need to provide more reserves to the system. So how are we going to go about doing that? That's, that's a very good point because they have a couple of ways, right? They have the uh, potential for a standing repo facility, which is basically just what they've been doing, but just having like a permanent window. Uh, and also they could end up buying more bonds, right? Yeah. So if you think about what they've done, what they did to raise interest rates, they basically created a standing facility to offer repo rates at a fixed rate to whoever wanted to, you know, collect that repo rate. Um, they now have the opportunity they, they could do the same thing at the other end of the target range right so instead of a floor have a ceiling right um now for i think a variety of flexibility reasons i don't think they want to do that um i think um which you know i, I sort of get um open-ended commitments to always do a certain you know an unlimited amount of something invite 
um, if not abuse, then certainly like the risk of, of people monkeying around. Um, and I think the Fed is, is hesitant to go down that road. They, like they don't want basically the whole financial system to be funding itself by lending bonds to the Fed. Um, so I think I think that's that's pretty much why they don't want to do that. Um, but the other option that you pointed out is to expand the balance sheet to provide permanent provision of reserves by buying bonds. And you know, as the economy grows, as banks' balance sheets grow, as these regulations are digested, as the demand for um, for reserves grows over time, the Fed can just come in whenever they need to and buy some bonds and that way they've got a fresh um they've, they've got they've, they're able to keep overnight interest rates stable and not volatile because they've provided liquidity right and i think it's important and i i know you've you've basically said this but i, I think it's important just to point out that you know the fed buying bonds in this case would not be like oh we think that the economy is going into a recession so we have to buy a ton of bonds to sort of you know keep everything from falling apart um, you know, they, who knows, right? Like in the next few years, they, they, they very well may end up doing something like that. But like, if they do this in the shorter term, it'll just be sort of an admission that like, oh, we overdid it before. So now we're sort of correcting course because I don't think they meant for things to get this tight. The Fed doesn't want overnight interest rates to jump around, like, you know, from 2% to 9% over the course of a couple of days. Like, yeah. You know that's not in anyone's interest um i think yeah. what people don't people don't really understand or a lot of people don't really understand you know balance sheets of central banks can expand for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with needing to stimulate the economy right um and have everything to do with making sure that the financial system is running smoothly um yeah and those you know they're they're adjacent things, but they're not the same thing. You really don't want them to be the same thing. Like if, you, if they're the same thing, then something's gone horribly wrong. Right yes. now, they're not the same thing. And so, so actually this, I think this sort of touches on a really interesting deeper question, which is like, whose responsibility is money, right? Like, is it the feds or is it the private sectors? Because the, the sort of assumption that, okay, the fed shouldn't be that involved in markets, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense historically, um, but it seems to be the sort of the starting point for a lot of people who are talking about this type of stuff and maybe, you know, at, we would think misinterpreting it potentially because of, yeah. Well, if you're, if you're, if your basic point of view is that the only money is gold and that anything that abstracts that at all is bad, then yeah, you're going to think that this sort of activity from the Fed is a huge problem. Yes. But if, you know, every time the Fed intervenes in markets, you're like, oh, th this is really bad. This must mean something's wrong. Like, you know, I have some bad news. <laughs> they do it all the time. You know, that's that's what always got me. You know, they've had the reverse repo facility open for years now. Yeah. And they also used to do it all the time pre-crisis. I mean, this is yeah. important. Like the dollar amounts have changed pretty significantly. On on September 17th, the Fed announced 75 billion available for um, excess or sorry, available for the market to have repoed out to it in reserves. So basically, if the market wanted to provide bonds, the Fed would give them up to 75 billion in excess reserves, um, which is like a pretty big number, right? So um, on 
9-14-2001, right? Right after the 9-11 terror attacks in New York, the Fed had to come out and provide a bunch of liquidity to make sure everything was going to settle okay. And that number was $81 billion. So other than that number, this is the biggest, the, the $53 billion is the biggest single day um, of any period, of any day post, uh, you know, any, any day in the American monetary system's history. Um, so 53 billion is a big number. That said, you know, between 2000 and 2008, you know, like a very long period of time, on average, the Fed was doing like 3 billion a day in these um, transactions. Um, they were happening, um, the median was like 2 billion a day. Um, and the number of days they did them was like, 738 different times so you know the fed used to be super active in the market regularly coming out and um you know providing these bonds um or providing this this, these reserves um you know just as a function of maintaining monetary policy they used to do the opposite too, you know take reserves out of the system as well um but basically this was what the new york fed's money desk did every day um then the crisis hit and they sort of got rusty with it and didn't need to do it for a long time and now they do again. I think to your question about about who control, you know, where where does money come from, right? We can't escape money being tied up in the government. Like, there's no way to have money um, without some centralized authority being involved in some way, right? Um, and you know that's a function of who ascribes property rights right like if you have gold and you know you want to hold on to that gold like the market decides gold's going to be the 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 money well you still need a government around to protect that property right right that that gold is your gold and that you know you have a right to do with that gold as you see fit like that is a thing that the government has to do so no matter what there's always going to be government involvement in money somehow the question is how much right exactly and also you know, the, the sort of separations that you see between the Treasury and the Fed and the way that they're managing their own things in their silos. And, you know, sometimes one silo gets out of whack with the other silo. And you see things like what happened in repo markets over the past three weeks. Right. Like if the, if, if everything was going like as smoothly as it possibly could, the Fed would say, you know, or, or the Treasury would say to the Fed, hey, like, here's our sort of plan for our, our liquidity. And you should probably be aware that this is going to be coming out of the system and just a heads up. And, you know, that would be managed. But instead, it wasn't there was no coordination at all, as far as we can tell. I think it'd be interesting to ask the Treasury. I mean, you're a journalist, Alex, you know, maybe get on the horn. No, I'm <laughs> um, I think it'd be interesting to ask All the people. Treasury. Yeah, I think it'd be super interesting to ask the Treasury and the Fed. Why don't you guys coordinate on stuff like this? Like, wh- why didn't yeah. the Treasury call the Fed or, you know, why didn't the Fed talk to the Treasury and, you know, say like, hey, what are these numbers looking like? Not because they're bad or good or whatever, but just because there's something that might have to be dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are, you know, I've, I do think that one thing that central bankers and other finance people tend to do is is to over overplay the mechanical aspects of things. But in, in this case, it really does seem like it was a mechanical thing. So I don't really see the harm in that. But, you know, I, I do know that there was a law passed at some point that said, like, the Fed and the, indep- and the Treasury shall be independent from one another. And, you know, it's this whole big uh, song and dance there. 
I mean, but sure, but there's a difference between that and yeah. the Treasury saying, hey, just a heads up, you should probably be keeping a close eye on the repo market because we're about to take billions of liquidity out of it. Like, <laughs> Exactly. And to be fair, I saw a couple of former New York Fed staffers actually publish notes the week before all of that happened and say, like, hey, we think repo markets might get a little weird next week. Yeah, and lo so. and behold, there they went. I actually want to give a big shout out to Gabriel Mathy, uh, who is an economics professor at American University, because he had this really great find. He he found an old uh, report talking about uh, bank accounts that the Treasury used to maintain. So basically, when tax payments came out of the system for this um, September uh, 16th tax day, this 1040 ES deadline, when those payments hit the Treasury, that's a deposit at the Federal Reserve, Those that liquidity is removed from the banking system. Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Those tax payments could just be pushed back to commercial banks and the reserves wouldn't be destroyed. They would stay in the banking system. The liquidity wouldn't go away if those deposits, instead of going to the Treasury's general fund held at the Federal Reserve, if they just went to you know, a, spe a specifically carved out bank account, it's still the treasury's money. You know, it's still all, all the changes is where the treasury puts it. Right. Um, and basically the idea is to not take liquidity out of the banking system when people are making payments for taxes. And, you know, this, I, I don't know why these went defunct. I, who knows? This was back in the 1940s, I believe. Um, if I'm getting, uh, the, the, um, anecdote right but basically like there have been solutions in the past that haven't even required fed and treasury coordination but have solved this problem of oh like we have you know this liquidity drain from taxes and we need to do something about that yeah uh, so i don't know i mean it, it seems like the the subject of liquidity which for so long was such a you know oh central banks are just buying tons of stuff and you know yada 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 now it's like no the rubber has really started to hit the road and it's made the world quite interesting again. Yeah, for sure. And and I do think that, you know, that's specifically in the U S right. Like the ECB is buying uh, what now 20 billion more or just 20 billion euros in bonds. Billion yeah. They restarted. Yeah, yeah. So the, so we may very well be ending up switching back to QE, whether to sort of mitigate global slowdowns um, or, you know, God knows what, but I think at least for now, like, you know, it is going to be interesting to see what happens in money markets. Always a fun time. Um, so Alex, before we head out today, I think it'd be really fun to do some trading rich and trading cheap. Um, I'm going to throw out a few terms and you're going to tell me whether you think they're trading rich or trading cheap. Perfect. All right. The first one is an absolute no brainer. Uh, you're going to laugh at this is Appalachia trading rich or trading cheap. Oh, so what do you mean? <laughs> well, you can I mean whatever you. Why? Why would you say that? Quality of life and just like amazing people and I, I don't know. I, I think that the sort of discourse around Appalachia is very broken in uh, a lot of cities. How, and how is it broken? Well, I don't know. I think that people tend to oversimplify the region um, and think that it's all you know laid off coal miners. And th those are the only people who live in Appalachia, which is like extremely not true. And uh, even if it was only laid off coal miners, I think that there's a really interesting his history of progressive activism in that area. 
And the politics and the culture, I think, is a lot more nuanced than people up north will give it credit for. However, I will... People up north or, oh, I mean, whoops. even where I live too, yeah. right? I mean, On I the get coast. plenty of... Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, yeah, I didn't mean because I guess there is Appalachia up north as well. Um, but I do think, though, that this sort of like new American type of, I don't know, uh, I don't want to say appropriation because it is like fundamentally, you know, American stuff, right? It's like this sort of mashup of of all of these different sort of country types of stuff. But I, I think that it hopefully has gone through the cycle where it's like been adopted by the cities and jacked up in price to ridiculous levels. And then, you know, this sort of uh, hypiness of it. <laughs> like, I think that J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy movie will hopefully be the top, <laughs> you know? And then we like can, maybe they'll just, and then yeah. after that, we can have like the real discourse about what's so awesome and needs fixing in Appalachia. Exactly. All right, so trading rich or trading cheap, uh, municipal bonds. Oh, I mean, they're trading rich, according to everyone in the market. Um, but I think they're trading cheap in terms of narrative because Why they're so interesting. And I feel like no one, I mean, people do talk about them, right? But it's always in terms of like, how are these municipal governments going to pay back all of this debt, which is kind of nuts because if you actually look at the size of the market, it's like the one bond, mar the one bond market that hasn't grown over the past 10 years. Yeah. If you look at that series, I, I, I look at the Z one every time it comes out the flow of funds report from mm -hmm. the fed and the municipal municipal government debt is the one chart every time. That's just, it looks like, it looks like just, bombed out and depleted just down and to the right you know debt relative to gdp is just continued to fall everywhere else it's either stable you know going up mortgages are probably one other exception but like lots of up and to the right charts around debt relative to the size of the economy but not in munis so why what's the disconnect between all the terror and like what's actually going on i think people just don't seem to like local governments like i i actually struggle to understand this um you know, I, now, like, I'm not a landowner necessarily, so maybe something happens when you buy a house where you just decide, like, no, I don't want to pay for anything. But, like, the the, um, the whole discourse around it and, like, even the, the sort of credit rating analysis is so wild compared to the corporate credit market because I've done a decent amount of corporate credit coverage. And, I mean, people just throw money at companies. They're like, we don't care what you use it for here you go, take our money, please. But with municipal governments, it's like you have to know exactly where it goes. You have to vote on it most of the time. And, you know, it turns into most of the time like real projects that people can like see and touch and actually use as opposed to like, you know, going into some slush fund at, you know, a major company. So I, I really I don't understand why it's not used more. Um, and it's been picking up a little bit because actually the changes in tax law have, have driven a lot of that because people now, of course, they don't like paying taxes and municipal bonds are tax exempt. So they're buying a ton of that. Yeah. Municipal um, bond flows are just absolutely bonkers over the past couple yeah. of years. Like every kind of municipal bond fund people have just been like backing up the truck for. Cause exactly. Like, 
Um, I, it is interesting, like that switch flipping when you like when you buy a house or like own land. Like I totally know what you're talking about. I haven't felt a flip switch or a switch flip <laughs> since I bought my house like nine months ago. But maybe it's yeah. something that kicks in after your first year. I mean, we we just had our first property <laughs> tax payments go out of our escrow account in October, and I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, it seems like a pretty good deal. We have good streets. Like we get nice garbage service. Like. I don't know. This seems like a pretty reasonable like amount to pay. Like I could see my taxes being quite a bit higher and it wouldn't be a big deal. So like I haven't said that to any of my neighbors yet, but I think I'm going to have to try and float that and see how how horrified people are. <laughs> yeah, I would be interested to see. I'd be interested to see what they say cuz I don't know. I pay New York rent. So <laughs> The idea of North Carolina property taxes sound amazing to me. Yeah, maybe I'm just still anchored in the New York property market. Um, (laughs) The the last trading rich and trading cheap question I have for you is the one of those companies that you described that it was just given money to do whatever they wanted with uh, WeWork. They were downgraded yesterday. Uh, They have their have had their IPO pulled. They've gotten rid of their CEO. Um, do you think WeWork is trading rich or trading cheap? And I think really the best way to put this is, do you think WeWork is in a death spiral or not? I think it's trading cheap. So I'm a little, I've like turned a little contrarian about this, possibly because everyone is really negative about it. And I've gotten bored with that story Uh, because there's not that much new to say. It's like, yes, it burns money. Uh, Yes, Adam Newman did a lot of uh, unusual things. Um, But SoftBank still has a really big stake in it and trying to imagine, I mean, I guess there's a chance they could just walk away. Um, but that seems like a little bit of a stretch for me. And also if it isn't a death spiral, I mean, I I mentioned this to someone just last week. Um, it, it's the biggest tenant in New York city. Um, so if it wasn't a death spiral and it did threaten, you know, okay, we're going to walk away from all 70, whatever of our locations, um, I mean, what what sort of negotiated could they do with that is, is sort of my main question, because I'm not sure New York City or any of the major cities where they're really large would want to let them walk away because having, you know, 70 office locations close at once in your city is generally not very good for, you know, taxes. Yeah, I, I think it's going to be really interesting to see. So th- today we had the headlines that they're uh, cutting down on new lease signings and basically batting down the expansion hatches to sort of try and prove the business model. And what I yeah. cannot wait to see is where they are a year from, you know, assuming, I, I don't think they're in a death spiral. I think they're pretty damn close, but I think they're going to get through it. What, you know, if, if you really want to be, a, you know, I think that the play is to buy the bonds, not to buy equity at this point. But um, the yeah. uh, the the really interesting thing is to look at where they're going to be a year from now in terms of operating metrics at existing locations. So can those places generate positive cash flow, real legitimate positive cash flow? And I think that the the reason the reason to be skeptical about this and it may you know one of the reasons I may be wrong that they could survive this. I think WeWork is the only S1 I've seen of this sort of platform company kind of like wave, you know, Peloton, uh, Uber, Lyft, whatever. All of them had some sort of cohort analysis. Some sort mm-hmm. of thing saying mm. Look at how great our cohorts are. They spend more over time. They're great, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. WeWork doesn't have that. Hmm. Right? They, in their S1, I didn't see a cohort analysis anywhere. All they were trying to do is strip out 
aggregate expansion costs as opposed to looking and saying, here's how we show you that our, that our cohorts do well and therefore we have a path to profitability. They didn't include that. So what I'm interested in, in is whether they didn't include it because it sucks or if they didn't include it because, you know, they're, they didn't think they needed to. So anyhow, that's my take on WeWork. That's interesting. Yeah, because I think there, I mean, there are more than, there are multiple ways to grow also, right? Like even for locations that are already up and running, um, I mean, anecdotally, I feel like every other person I talk to about WeWork is like involved with them in, in business somehow and says something like, oh yeah, I don't know how they can afford to pay these rebates or charge rents like these or do this or that. So but of course, like by doing that, they end up expanding their reach a lot. And I guess maybe this is just the time when they try to figure out like how much are our customers actually willing to pay? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that depends on what their competitors are charging, which is apparently more <laughs> from what I, you know, anecdotally in New York City, at least. And, um, you know, what whether the business model survives then. Yeah, I've, I actually know somebody who's involved with one of their competitors, and you know the the quote that that person who shall remain anonymous uh, mm -hmm. gave to me is like, you know, um, like as long as they're in the headlines, that's good for us, right? Um, <laughs> because you know our we know our financial model works. It's ultimately the same service provided at a different price and on different terms, but you know it, we can survive whatever's happening to WeWork. That's not going to hurt us. So if they're yeah. in the headlines, that's good for us. So hmm, that makes sense. Anyhow, that is it uh, for Bespoke Cast this week or this month. We've been a little bit less frequent lately than we'd like to be, but hopefully that'll pick up uh, as we head into the winter. Uh, Alex Keggs, thanks so much for joining us. This is a great time talking about repo. Absolutely. Always fun talking about repo. And thank you for having me. Thanks. We'll talk to you again soon. Great. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.